0: Continuing on in our series in, in Jonah, I'm going to focus especially on the, the tenth verse of this passage. But we always want to look at those within context, uh, within proper context. So uh, let's give our attention. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it that message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out yet forty days and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving it for us. And we ask that your precious spirit would be our teacher today, that he would enable us to understand, but more than just in, in our head and in our mind, but right in our heart, that because of who you are and what you have done, there would be comfort. And so, Lord, we ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, if you've been with us for the last four weeks, you know the flow of the book, but I, I never presume that that that's the case. We always need to remember where where we've been. So we have uh, this prophet who is called by God. He's told uh, that he is to get up and go to Nineveh because of the evil that is there. And we talked about the evil of that city, that it, it, it was uh, equivalent to the ISIS of our day. It was real, true evil, hated by the Jews. And so Jonah, rather than going there, turned his face as far away as he could the other direction and began to, to run to Tarshish. He jumped on a boat and uh, was stopped very quickly by a storm. The sailors uh, felt like they were going to sink. The ship was going to sink. And so they did everything within their power, everything that all of their uh, training as mariners would teach them to do in order to survive, including throwing uh, all their cargo overboard, which was their livelihood. They really thought they were going to die. And finally, they, they figured out that it was this passenger. Jonah said, it's me. And they understood. He was running from his God. What do we do? He said, throw me in the water. He would rather rather lose his life than to go preach in Nineveh. He never even said, well, why don't we turn around and go back and I'll go to Nineveh, which seems to me would have been an option since he knew knew that uh, this was happening because of God. So they throw him in after he hits the water. The storm goes away. They turn to God and worship him. And as he is going down, evidently down to the bottom, according to his prayer later in that chapter, God appointed a fish. And this fish obeyed God better than his prophet did. He swallowed up Jonah, who was there inside of him, for three days and three nights. After some time, we read of his prayer, which is basically Scripture. And we, we in our studies, said that probably a summary of many prayers that he had prayed during that time, because it uh, was rather brief. But where he turned back to God. So that appointed fish, God appointed him then to spit him out on dry land. Which I, you know, I don't know how far he had to spit him. Would you ever think of that too? Because I, you know, he would have had to come in close enough to spit him out onto anyway. So when you're in a book for a while you start you know, catching all these little details so he's on, on the dry land no telling what he looked like or smelled like at that point but God called him again go to Nineveh tell him what I say and he arose and went to Nineveh when he got there He gave what has to be, uh, if this is all that there was to it, one of the briefest messages, uncreative messages. Now, evidently, this is what God told him to say. Gave that message, look, in 40 days you're going to be destroyed. That, by the way, he would have been okay with saying to them because he wanted them to be destroyed. Soon as he got it out of his mouth, people turned to God. There was a revival there. There was genuine repentance, and we spent all last week talking just about repentance and what that is. As you know, as we have uh, sin that you are headed toward, and you you literally you you have a hatred for that and a grief over it, and so you turn from that toward God. And you, you say, I don't ever want to do that again. That's genuine repentance. Even the king repents. And we see that from you know, him saying, we're, we're not only, only going to say we're sorry, we're not only going to fast, but we're turning from our evil ways. It's Repentance. But then we come to a problem. And that's that verse 10. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What's the problem? Well, some versions, and maybe some of your versions, actually translate the word that describes what God did as, where I just read he relented. It uses the word repented. What in the world? And that's actually a legitimate translation. But either way, it appears that that God changed his mind. So what? Well, I can tell you that uh, there is a theological view out there that basically says there is no big plan. God is uh, merely watching what's going on and then... Responding when it's appropriate. Some call that open theism. It's actually just an old heresy wrapped up in new names and presented by different theologians. What's the problem with that? You know, the, the open theists, those would see God as the great responder And they would even look at verses like this and they would say, See? He didn't know what was going to take place. So he saw what they did and then he changed his mind. Because after all, Jonah said what was going to happen, he said they were going to be destroyed. So evidently God was going to destroy them in 40 days, but he didn't. So what's the issue? Why do I have a problem with open theism and with with those that would say that God is forever changing his mind in in, uh, things like this, and so that his will is basically determined by what we humans do? See the problems? Well, think about the nature of God that we see in the Scripture. God is immutable. He is unchangeable. Let me read you some passages, and these should be in in your outline, at least where they are. Numbers 23, 19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Uh Uh-oh. Right there seems to contradict what it looks like in Jonah 3.10. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? In 1 Samuel 29. And also the glory of Israel... God, will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. So the, the Scripture talks, and this is, there, there are many, many more verses along those lines, but uh, the Scripture talks about him being immutable or unchangeable. This is uh, what, what we would call, in terms of God's attributes, one of his incommunicable attributes attributes. In other words, there are communicable attributes. Think of disease. You can catch it. And there are those uh, attributes of God that are communicable, and we can have them to some degree. And then there are those that are incommunicable, and they are totally different than us. So when it comes to God being immutable, unchangeable, That's one of those incommunicable. We don't relate to that, the fact that he cannot change and does not change. So if he's unchangeable, how can he change his mind and not destroy them when he said that they were going to be destroyed in 40 days? There's another attribute that seems to run in conflict here, and that is God is omniscient. And that means all-knowing. So if he knows everything, why would he say, Jonah, tell him that they are going to be destroyed in 40 days? Wouldn't he have known their response also? And don't we talk about the only way we can ever respond to God is if he enables us to? Because he's Sovereign in that way? So see the dilemma? Here in Jonah, God relents. Seems to contradict the scripture that I just shared with you. Now let me confuse it a little bit more. And then we'll have a benediction and go home, okay? (laughs) not quite. I need you to stay with me in this. In Jeremiah 18 begins by that passage begins by talking about the potter and the clay and how uh, a potter can do whatever he wants. We have a New Testament reference to this too in Romans, but how a potter can do whatever he wants with uh, his clay because he's the potter and the clay can't complain about it or anything. It's an illustration of how God works. And then in in Jeremiah 18, he basically says, Can't I do like the potter? This is what he says, Jeremiah 18, 7. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil... I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. That's what he did in Jonah 3.10. So God is saying, as the as the potter, I I have the right if if people turn from their evil ways to bless them. And if I'm blessing them and they they turn to evil, I have the right to judge them as well. So now let's start to unravel all this, because we, we seem to have these things coming to each other from different directions. God uses human choice to achieve his decrees. Start with that. God uses human choice to achieve his decrees. Richard Pratt puts it this way, belief in God's immutability his unchangeableness, does not negate the importance of historical contingencies or especially the importance of human choices. Now, Richard Pratt is a, a reformed theologian who believes in God's sovereignty. But he's saying, you know, the fact that he's immutable doesn't negate that he uses what he calls human uh, historical contingencies or especially the importance of human choices under the sovereign control of God the choices people make determine the directions history will take so here what he's saying is that he absolutely is in control but that doesn't mean that that humans don't make very real choices and that but even in that God will forward and complete his decree. Now, it's essential. Let me give you a a little sidebar here um, because it's essential that we understand when we talk theology. Uh, This morning we read from Isaiah 55. For as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Remember the verses I, I read earlier about uh, he's not a man that he should lie? So we've always got to remember that, that God is not a human, so to describe him in human terms are never sufficient. That, that's essential. We've, we've got we, to hold on to that. Any human term to describe God will always fall short. Of a complete picture. And yet we're human and we're limited by human language, so we have to use human language. And in fact, God uses human language in describing Himself. So basically, when we talk about God, we are talking in analogical terms, we are using analogy. And we use, hang in there, anthropomorphisms also. By the way, if you were at the senior study last Thursday, you would know all about this. That's, the, that's what you missed by not being at the senior study. We actually went into this uh, a little bit. And, and anthropomorphism is uh, where we use human terms to describe God, but we understand that It's not exactly that way. We may say the eyes of the Lord are upon his people. But we know know Jesus, because he has a body, has real eyes. But you know what? The Father and the Holy Spirit, they don't have eyes like we do. How, How could they see everywhere if they did? And so we understand what that means, though. The eyes of the Lord are upon his people means that he sees us. So that's an anthropomorphism. Uh, We talk about his hand, his arms, his eyes, and so on. Now, let me give you an example of analogical language. this, This should clear it up. If we say, God is good, and we say, Hosea is good, Those are exactly sound equivalent. We're using the exact same terms. But when we say that, we understand that they're not exactly equal, don't we? Because when we say God is good, we know he is perfectly good. He is holy in his goodness. He's infinite, eternal in his goodness. That's what the kind of good that he is but when we say, Hosea is good, we're saying, relatively speaking, he's a pretty good person. Even if he's a sinner, and even if he's not always perfectly good, Hosea is good. So, that's what I mean by saying that we, we have to understand the idea of analogical language. And this is all getting and gives us a hint that when it says God relented or he repented, it's different than when we relent or we repent. When we repent, as we looked at last week, it's out of our sin, out of regret, out of shame, when God relents or repents. There is no regret. There is never any shame. There is never any sin. It's something other than it is when we talk about us relenting or repenting. So, what's the nature of God's relent? The bottom line is that when Nineveh repents, the fact that God says he relented is his sovereign decision and it's a response to Nineveh's change in behavior. His relenting wasn't forced by human repentance but was a gracious response to it. There's a difference. This should be in your outline too. There is a difference between God's eternal decree and prophecies with implied conditions. In Jonah, the king of Nineveh understood that 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 was a prophecy with an implied condition in this way. He understood it wasn't just a promise you're going to be destroyed. It was you're going to be destroyed unless something changes. He understood that because he said maybe God will relent. Jonah understood it too because that's what he was upset in the first place. He knew that that God might show mercy, would show mercy, if they repented. And he didn't want that. He is by implication saying, if you don't repent, this will happen. Let me give you an example from my upbringing. You're going to get a spanking. I know it's hard for you to imagine my parents ever having to say that to me. I actually heard that a lot growing up. And it doesn't mean I got a lot of spankings, and they didn't beat me, you know, but I did get some. If my mom was here, she'd just be smiling, and saying, "I don't remember those." But I got better as she got older. So, okay. But what does it mean, you know, it, when when my my mom or dad would say, "You're going to get a spanking"? Well, here's what it meant. Here would have been the whole sentence: If you don't straighten up, you're going to get a spanking or if you don't be quiet, or if you don't speak up, or sit down, or whatever I wasn't doing, or should have been doing. And it was all implied in there. And usually, it was completely understood by me, what was implied. And usually, it was enough to change my behavior. So that's a a prophecy with implied implications. I understood it. My mom would have understood it. And, uh, and and that's parallel really with what we we see here. That makes sense? You see, that's how we talk. And and so when God said in forty days you'll be destroyed, the king understood it, Jonah understood it, and the people evidently understood unless you repent, and they repented. So who really changed when God made that threat through Jonah? It was the Ninevites that changed, not God. In fact, he is immutable in that he will not let the guilty go unpunished And he is also immutable in that he will always show mercy upon those who repent. That's his decree. Those will always be true. He's unchangeable in those. That's why we need to understand there's a difference between God's eternal decree and prophecies with implied conditions. I want to share one more thing about the nature of his relent. The Hebrew word that's translated relent or repent is different from the, word that, the words that describe what Nineveh and the king did. In the Hebrew, that word has a sense of God being moved to pity so that's how God can forgive sin at the cross of Jesus the father actually suffers in repenting from judgment on our sin the father son holy spirit they relent but it's out of out of pity and out of grace and out of mercy one commentator said he takes upon himself the evil which was the wages of man's sin he suffers the very suffering which in his justice he should have laid on man god causes the judgment to fall on himself this is the meaning of his repenting so his here's the application His relenting in the case of Nineveh, and in our case, is justified and in fact shows that he will never relent from his decree to show mercy to his people. That should be an encouragement to us. That's the good news for us. He will never reject those who repent, and he will show mercy to those who do. And so from a human perspective, the Ninevites would have been the last people on earth to repent and turn from their evil ways and turn to God. So if he can cause repentance in the Ninevites, we should never give up on the Ninevites In our neighborhood, the Ninevites you work with, the Ninevites in your own family, never give up because there is no one that is beyond the reach of God.